All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on the book of Acts. The listener's commentary is a crowdfunded Bible teaching effort. So if you've been blessed in some way by the listener's commentary, would you prayerfully consider supporting the commentary so that it can continue to spread and be available to as many people as possible? The whole reason the listener's commentary exists is to help people learn and live the Bible in down-to-earth language. And it's made possible by the generosity of people just like you. So if you're one of the the people who make this commentary possible, thanks a ton for your support. And if you decide to join the team here in the near future, I'm just so grateful for each and every one of you who make this possible. In this session, we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3. And it is a brand new snapshot. In our previous several recordings, we are looking at the day of Pentecost, the story in Acts chapter 2. Here in Acts 3, we, we shift to a brand new scene in the first act of the story of Acts. It's another scene showing how the gospel is progressing and gaining a foothold in the city of Jerusalem. And this particular scene takes place sometime in the first few months, we're not exactly sure when, the first few months of church history, and it happens specifically in the temple at the hour of prayer. If you recall in our previous recording at the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke describes how the the first gathering of believers, those 3,000 people who were baptized and became a part of the family of Jesus there at the end of Acts chapter 2, he describes how they're gathering together regularly, both in a large group in the temple And they're gathering from house to house and how the Lord is using that to bring people to Jesus and add people to the family. Well, here in this snapshot, Peter and John are heading to the temple, perhaps to meet with a gathering of believers there in the temple, as we were told that was part of their process, or we're not sure why, but they're on their way to the temple at the hour of prayer when they, when they run into a lame man who's being carried to the temple to beg for his livelihood. And from that, we get this story. This story actually includes all of Acts 3 and a good chunk of Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at it in a couple of parts. And so we're going to begin with what happens in the temple and the initial response to it here in Acts chapter 3. Look at Acts chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. The ninth hour in their reckoning of counting time is what we would call three in the afternoon. It was one of the times for sacrifice and prayer in the temple. And so Peter and John, two apostles, are on their way up to the temple at that hour of prayer and sacrifice. On their way into the temple, they are met by a man who's being carried by some friends who has been unable to walk his whole life. Now, in order to picture this scene, we need to have some idea of what the Jerusalem temple looked like. And I have more on this with a picture and some descriptions in the listener's commentary study hub. At the time of this recording, that is not quite available yet, but it will be available soon, Lord willing, here in the next few weeks. And uh, so if you're listening to this sometime after November of 2021, you might check out the study hub. It's an area where I bring together additional resources that people can use to help study the text of scripture. So to help you picture the temple, 
let me just describe some things here. You have the temple proper in Jerusalem, but around that you have a massive temple complex with huge courtyards and porches around the perimeter of those courtyards. There's actually meeting places underneath uh, and all that. So it's a large complex with the temple proper in the middle of that. And so Peter and John are in their way into uh, the temple complex in order to gather, presumably with some believers, at the hour of prayer. And here's what happens. Verse 2. And a man who had been unable to walk from birth was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order for him to beg for charitable gifts from those entering the temple grounds. So this particular man, he, he hasn't been able to walk his whole life. And every day he would be carried into the temple by some friends and he would be sat down at the gate called Beautiful beautiful in order to beg in more traditional renderings to beg alms, to ask for charitable gifts. It made sense because people are going into the temple to worship. One of the standard acts of Jewish piety and godliness was to give to the needy. And so this man on, on you know, sitting at the gate beautiful is right there where people are in a worshiping mood, where there's a little bit of social peer pressure to give. He probably has a pretty good gig going as far as a beggar goes. Uh, and he was sat down every day, it says, at the gate in the temple, which is called beautiful. There were a number of gates in the temple complex, and we have no historical record of any gate being given this nickname, Beautiful. So we don't know exactly which gate this was. There's been a lot of speculation about it. Some have suggested the Nicanor Gate, which was the gate between the court of the women into the court of the men where the sacrifices and everything was performed. Highly uh, unlikely. This doesn't make, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It was a, definitely a beautiful gate. Large brass gate with inset silver and gold. So certainly a beautiful gate. And in that sense, the nickname would be appropriate, but it doesn't make sense for the beggar there because it wasn't the, a place where there would be high traffic. Uh, his uh, lameness might've actually prohibited him from entering into that area. And so we don't really know which gate it was in the temple. It was some large gate where there would be high traffic volume uh, and a gate that had a reputation for being beautiful, somewhere in the temple complex. So notice here in the story, uh, this man uh, was being carried along. In other words, he hasn't even gotten to the gate when this happened, all right? He's being carried by his friends to his spot in order to uh, beg for charitable gifts, and he hasn't arrived yet, and he's on his way into the temple at the same time Peter and John are on their way into the temple. And this is what happens, verse 3. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, and so all of them are on their way into the temple courtyard, the temple complex. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he figured, might as well get started with my begging. He began to ask to receive a charitable gift. So he begins to ask Peter and John for alms, beg for some money. Uh, Peter, along with John, looked at him intently. Notice that Peter and John looked at him. They, gave, they made sure this guy made eye contact with them. They made eye contact with him. They looked at him intently and they said to him, look at us. 
look at us. And so they wanted to make sure that this guy didn't hang his head down, that he that they looked eyeball to eyeball, face to face. And the man gave them, Peter and John, his attention, expecting to receive something. So when they acknowledged him, he looked at them, hopeful and expecting that they would give him something. And here's what Peter said, verse 6. Peter said, I do not have silver and gold. There's the disappointing opening line. I do not have silver and gold. This man is looking at them, expecting to get something. And Peter says, I do not have silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. And so Peter doesn't offer him money. It doesn't have any money to give him. He gives him something more than that. He gives him his legs back. He gives him the ability to walk. Remember, this man had never walked his whole life. And so Peter says, in the name of Jesus Christ, the one from Nazareth, the Nazarene, walk. A couple things to note. Notice the name of signifies the authority and the power to do this. And so Peter's doing this in the name of Jesus, by his authority and by his power. Specifically, it's the name of Jesus the Messiah. This connects and communicates in the Jewish context, right? Peter is a witness of Jesus. And so in the name of Jesus the Messiah, the one from Nazareth, let's make sure we know who we're talking about, walk. And then verse 7 It says, and grasping him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And so Peter reaches over, uh, presumably this this guy was set down by his friends when all this is going on. Peter reaches down, grabs this man by the right hand, begins to help him up. And, and, And as the man begins to try to get up and Peter's helping him, immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. It would have been amazing to just have been there and experienced this and to seen this. But think about this from like this man has never walked. If you've ever been around somebody who has never walked, right? And they have small ankles, small calf muscles, small legs. There's no strength. And somehow immediately the power of God through in the name of Jesus, like just strengthen all the muscles, all the tendons, all the ligaments in his ankles. And they were strengthened and Notice verse 8, and leaping up, this man didn't just stand up, leapt up, leaping up. He stood and was walking and began to walk with Peter and John. And he entered into the temple complex with them, the big massive courtyard around the temple proper. Notice walking and leaping and praising God. As this guy comes into the temple with Peter and John, he's walking and he's jumping and he's praising God in his excitement because now he can walk again. Uh, And what a scene this would be. And so all the people, verse 9, saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg for charitable gifts. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So he comes into the temple and he's shouting and jumping and praising God. The people look at him and he's well known. He sat in an area where so many people passed by him over the years that they recognized him and they recognized who he was and they were all filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, once again, this attracted people's attention and 
Notice then as the story continues, verse 11, while he was clinging to Peter and John, so he's walking and leaping and praising God and grabbing a hold of Peter and John and hugging them and praising God some more and jumping some more. All of the scene uh, really draws attention, right? And so all the people rushed together to them at the portico named Solomon's, completely astonished. And so they end up near Solomon's porch. And Solomon's porch was one of the porches around the perimeter of the large temple complex. It was on the eastern side of the temple, and the Jewish historian Josephus describes it as being made of white stones. Catch this, each stone being about 33 feet long by 10 feet wide, and the whole thing, the whole of Solomon's porch, was about 650 feet long by 50 feet wide, uh, and and the roof was supported by 43-foot-high columns. So we're not talking a small area. This is a large area. That's what I'm saying. The temple complex was this large, massive, massive complex. So they ended up somewhere near Solomon's porch, and the people now rush over, completely astonished to figure out what, what just happened to this guy. And so when Peter saw this, he saw their amazement, he saw their wonder, he saw how astonished they are, the way they're looking at Peter and John. Peter says this, verse 12, And when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why are you staring at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? And so Peter sees the reaction of the people, and he's like, Why are you amazed at this? And why are you staring at us like we did this by our own power or our own godliness, our own piety, our own, like we're religious enough that somehow we have the special ability to do it. That's the idea of godliness. Why are you looking at us like that? And then he goes on to say, here's what happened. And he uses it as an opportunity to preach the good news about Jesus once again. Look at verse 13. The God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers. This was the standard, a very common way for Jews to refer to God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, if you're not super familiar with your Old Testament, those are the Jewish patriarchs. Uh, Abraham is like the founding father of the Jewish people. It was to him that God gave the promise uh, of see descendants offspring that led to Isaac, his son. And then Isaac carried the promise forward to his son, Jacob. And Jacob then became known as Israel. And it was Jacob's son that became the nation of Israel. So these are the patriarchs, the founding fathers of the nation. And it was this was a common Jewish way of referring to God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, Notice what he says, has glorified his servant Jesus, the one whom you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So once again, just like on the Pentecost sermon, Peter holds the people accountable for putting Jesus to death, for rejecting him and like your response, you called for uh, the Messiah to be killed. And so Peter hands them or holds them accountable for handing over Jesus in the presence of Pilate. Notice how he describes Jesus, that God has glorified his servant Jesus. This phrase, God's servant, his servant, is an echo of the servant of Yahweh from uh, Isaiah, the servant of the Lord in the Isaiah passages, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, the most well-known uh, servant of Yahweh passage, Isaiah 53, right? The suffering servant passage. And so when 
Peter describes Jesus that way for Jewish ears listening. They immediately hear that context and they're saying, he's saying to them that God glorified his servant, Jesus, the one that you handed over and disowned in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release him. He says, verse 14, you disowned the holy and righteous one. Notice that title for Jesus. He's the holy one and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, but put to death the prince of life whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are all witnesses. And so Peter calls to mind the events of just, again, we don't know exactly when in the early church this happened. Was it just weeks after Pentecost? Was it a couple of months? Either way, we're only a few months out from, from these very events that Peter describes, from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, from Pilate as the governor, right? So this is all recent memory. They all were there. Peter's preaching this in the very city where it happened. It's all stuff they knew, they saw, they experienced. It was it was just recent memory, recent history for them. It's not like a distant sort of thing. Again, the gospel is good news. It's news about Jesus, right? It's not uh, just a plan of salvation or anything else. It's news. And he's just, here's the news, right? Like, this is what happened. And so he's calling this to mind for them. He calls to mind how they handed Jesus over. They asked for a murderer. Who's that? Read Luke chapter 23. That's Barabbas, how they called for uh, Pilate to release Barabbas and crucify Jesus. And that's really a beautiful picture. If you listen to my notes on that in the listener's commentary on Luke, it's a beautiful picture really of salvation. How here's a well-known, well-documented, convicted criminal, Barabbas. He gets released and Jesus gets condemned, which is very much the way it seems the crucifixion worked. And so Peter calls all this to mind. He calls to mind how they put to death, notice the prince of life, verse 15. That word prince has also the force of sort of like author of life. It's, it's not just he's the ruler of life. He's the author of life, the one who brings life about. He, he's the one that has the power of life. You put him to death, but he's the prince of life. God raised him from the dead. And so he, once again, he's pointing to the resurrection. And he says, a fact to which we are witnesses, eyewitnesses. We saw this. That's the apostle's job. Remember Acts chapter one, their job is to be a witness of the resurrection. And Peter is just saying, that's who we are. We testify to this as eyewitnesses. So after calling to mind recent events in their immediate history, right? Reminding them how God raised Jesus from the dead. Now he comes back to the point at hand and he says it was through the power of Jesus that this man was strengthened. Notice what he says, verse 16. On the basis of faith in his name, it is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Peter is still preaching Jesus. The miracle points to Jesus, not to itself, not to Peter, not to how awesome Peter is. It points to Jesus. And so it is on the basis of faith in his name. It is the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. And the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And so Jesus is the one who has healed this man, and Peter draws attention to that. But there's an important uh, little grammatical note that I, I think is really helpful to us as we read um, verse 16, and that is, uh, whose faith is the one that made this man well? Peter's faith, the lame man's faith, right? Like, 
whose faith made this well? And the answer is nobody's really. The way this is actually worded in Greek, it doesn't speak so much of a person's subjective experience of faith as it does the faith that has Jesus as its object. And so this is objective faith. It's not say, Peter's faith, because Peter believed enough in Jesus that he could do miracles. It's not the lame man's faith. He had enough faith to be healed. And so often, that's the way we're made to feel in our context today, is if you want to experience a miracle, you just have to have enough faith. But the way this is worded in Greek does not specify that anybody had any particular kind of faith in Jesus. What this is saying is that there is a a belief that has Jesus for, for its object, and it's that faith, the faith. In other words, the content about Jesus. It's similar to what uh, Jude writes in his letter when he says, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. We're not talking about anyone's particular faith there in Jude. We're talking about the faith, uh, the the faith that has Jesus as its object, the belief in Jesus. And so what we're saying is it's not on the basis of any particular person's faith in Jesus' name. It is simply the name of Jesus and the faith in him which strengthened this man. And so, again, the focus isn't on any particular person's faith so much as it is on Jesus and his power and his resurrection uh, that is the key thing. And it's the faith which focuses on him that has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Then Peter goes on and says in verse 17, and now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. What you did was in ignorance. You didn't know fully what you were doing. You didn't fully understand who Jesus was. And so I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers also did. But God used your ignorance and God used these events to achieve his purposes. So, but, verse 18, the things which God previously announced by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he has fulfilled in this way. He has fulfilled through your actions, even though they were in ignorance, God used them to achieve his purposes, the very things that he announced through all the prophets. Therefore, verse 19, here's how you need to respond. Therefore, repent and return. Turn away from rejecting Jesus. Turn away from opposition to Jesus and turn back to God return back to God because God is now at work in and through Jesus. And so if you want to know God and want to experience God, you're going to find that in and through Jesus. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. Uh, so that your, your sins, both the sin of rejecting Jesus and what you did to him, as well as any other sins may be wiped away in order that, here's the goal of having your sins wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Notice that. Uh, the goal, at least this this is one of them. He's going to state another one in verse 20. One of the goals of turning to, to God in Jesus and having your sins wiped away, it says here, is that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Like, refresh your soul, refresh your heart, get rid of the agony, get rid of the guilt, get rid of the shame and the stress. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. And second goal, verse 20, that he may send Jesus the Messiah appointed for you. And so 
that that he may send you the return to the Lord, come and wait for him to send Jesus again. We're looking for Jesus to return again. And so turn to the Lord, Peter calls to these Jews here in the temple, that he may send Jesus, the Messiah appointed for you, whom, verse 21, heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouths of his holy prophets from ancient times. So when you repent and return, one of the things that that leads to is waiting for God to send Jesus the Messiah. In the meantime, Jesus must stay in heaven. Heaven must receive him until the period of restoration of all things. Notice that, pointing to the end when God makes all things new and restores all things. So Jesus must remain in heaven and be received in heaven until that happens. And God spoke about this, like, this intervening time, God spoke about the restoration of all things through the mouths of his holy prophets. And so we're, we're kind of like at the beginning of the final stage of God's purposes. And we're waiting for all things to be restored when God makes all things new. And in that moment, then Jesus, the Messiah, will return once again. Verse 22, Peter goes on and he, he quotes... Uh, from an Old Testament passage from Deuteronomy chapter 18 uh, about the prophet like Moses, which was a well-known idea in the first century among the Jews, and it was a way to describe the Messiah that was to come. And so Peter quotes from Deuteronomy 18 and verse 22, Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your countrymen. To him, you shall listen regarding everything he says to you. And it shall be that every soul that doesn't listen to that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And so Peter quotes this passage from Deuteronomy 18, beginning in verse 15, that was well known and was understood to point to a great prophet. And Peter is essentially saying, Jesus is that prophet, and so you need to listen to him. So repent and return which means turn and listen to the prophet like Moses, and that person is Jesus. You need to listen to him. If you don't do that, um, God has already said you'll be cut off from his people. He goes on in verse 24 and says, And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward, so all the Old Testament prophets from Samuel on, have announced these days, have announced the days of Messiah, have announced the days of waiting for the restoration of all things. They've all looked forward to this. And it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God ordained with your fathers. You as Jews, like this is your heritage. You've received this. It's time for you to get on board with what God is doing. And so repent and return to God by listening to Jesus the Messiah. That's the idea here. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God ordained with your fathers. What covenant does he have in mind? Well, look, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the original promise to Abraham that really began Jewish history, uh, where God was going to reverse the curse of the fall through Abraham, bringing his blessing to all the earth. Notice, all the families of the earth. Even though it's going to take a while, the story of Acts, Peter already has here in the text that this is going to go to all the families of the earth. And it takes a while for Peter to get that figured out, what that means. We'll see that in Acts chapters 10 and 11. But, but for now, he's getting these Jews to say, look, th this covenant that God made through Abraham, in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that 
promise is fulfilled in the ultimate seed of Abraham, Jesus the Messiah. And so you need to return to God by listening to Jesus the Messiah. God raised up his servant for you first and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. And so Peter preaches this message there in the temple with this man who was formerly lame, now leaping and walking, this crowd that is gathered around uh, in Solomon's porch. They're all amazed. Peter seizes the opportunity to preach the name of Jesus to this gathered crowd. Now, even though we're only in the middle of the story, the story is going to continue across the chapter break into chapter four. We'll see what happens to Peter and John and the way the story unfolds from there. And in doing so, we'll actually hear the, the, the big idea that Luke is trying to communicate through this snapshot. And so we'll save the whole theme for this whole story until we actually get the whole story done in chapter four. But in the meantime, here in the middle of the story, let me just offer this simple little reflection, and that's this, is that Peter points to Jesus. Should be obvious here in this story, but he doesn't want attention on himself. He doesn't want people to think how great he is, right? He doesn't point attention to uh, his power to heal. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He immediately takes the focus off himself. Why do you look at us as if it's by our power or our godliness that we've done this thing? He takes the focus off himself and he puts the focus squarely on Jesus. And that leads him to tell people about Jesus. And ultimately, that's that's the way we as witnesses to today should live our lives. We don't point to ourselves. It doesn't matter what people think of us so much. The goal is for us to take the focus off of ourselves and put the spotlight on Jesus. Jesus is the one who deserves acclaim. It is Jesus who laid down his life for us. It is Jesus who has the power to make all things new and to heal. It is Jesus and the faith that's found in him that made this man and this story well. It's Jesus who continues to bring life and healing and wholeness in our world today. And so our job is to be witnesses of him and to take the focus off ourselves and put all the focus on Jesus himself.